I'm Chris from Play Comics, a show where we look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material, a part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other astonishingly geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. You are listening to the Starling Tribune, a podcast dedicated to the Arrow TV show. I am the Green Arrow. The Green Arrow has entered through the front door. This podcast is not produced or maintained by the CW, Warner Brothers Television, CTV, or DC Comics. All characters, situations, and stories are the properties of Time Warner. I am the Oracle, and this is your Tribune. Welcome back to Earth 2's favorite newspaper, the Starling Tribune. And I am looking forward to going back to Earth 2 in this year's crossover. I am the chief editor, SP, and your other award-winning reporters and awesome reporters for this episode number 248 of the Starling Tribune are Chris. Boom, boom. (laughs) Mick was great this episode. Can't wait to talk about that. And Michelle. It's always the doormat. This podcast is recorded on Thursday, September 5th, 2019, live on Live. That's right, and this evening we'll be discussing Legends of Tomorrow, as well as news, interviews, articles, and announcements that have dropped in the last couple weeks that could, and let's be honest, probably will impact future episodes of Legends of Tomorrow, as well as the other shows in the universe. That includes The Flash, Supergirl, Arrow, and anything else they decide to make, like Batwoman, Black Lightning. It's all fair game. If you're new to the show, thank you for searching us out on the internet and joining us. After the show, you can check out our content on GunnaGeek.com. We could also find other geeky videos, podcasts, and articles. Thanks, guys. Now that we've introduced the show, Michelle, why don't you go ahead and break down the current episode that we're watching today? Sure thing. This is Egg McGuffin. It's Legends Season 4, Episode 13. It aired Monday, April 29, 2019. Directed by Christopher Tomorrow. Has two directing credits, episodes of Legends, has 54 camera and electrical department credits, and was part of the camera and electrical department for 31 episodes of Legends. So this is someone promoted in-house, which is something we've learned that many of the Arrowverse shows like to do. Written by James Egan. Credits include three Hellcats, two Ash vs. Evil Dead, and seven episodes of Legends. And Tyron B. Carter. Credits include one episode of Arrow and five Legends. The week that this episode aired on the CW was in April 2019, and it started on Sunday, the 28th of April, with Supergirl's 19th episode of the fourth season titled American Dreamer to a live plus seven day DVR rating of 1.87. On Monday, the 29th of April, you had this show that we're talking about today with a live plus seven day DVR of 1.48 million. And... Following that, Arrow had the 20th episode of the seventh season. Wow, I never thought I'd be saying that again. To a live plus seven-day DVR number of 1.26, that episode was titled Confessions. And then on Tuesday, the 30th of April, Flash aired the 20th episode of their fifth season, titled Gone Rogue, to a live plus seven-day DVR rating of 2.62, which is really good in this day of streaming on the CW app. So congrats. I, I did like all these numbers. Arrow is still getting kind of the shaft there with the low ones, but hey, it's coming up to uh, final 10 episodes and we can't wait to cover them just in a few weeks. I saw what you did there with that pun on Arrow getting the shaft. 
Well done. I tried. I was going to let it lie, but I decided that it had to be acknowledged. Well done. I stayed up all night writing that joke. Golf clap. <laughs> Gamma quadrant golf clap. <laughs> all right. Uh, which is, by the way, a homage to the Anomaly podcast. If you haven't checked them out, please do so. There are a couple of great ladies over there with Jen and Angela. So, Michelle, we start our conversation off every time with the overall theme of the episode. We correlate the overall theme with the title of the episode because they do, in fact, put a lot of effort into naming their episodes. So, Michelle, what do you got for us this week? Well, first, it sounds like Egg McMuffin, which is a food from McDonald's. And delicious. Yeah, no. It's actually called Egg McGuffin. Now, a McGuffin is a cinematic term really popularized by Hitchcock. It's a thing that just drives the plot forward or drives the characters to do something. Basically, whenever Neil would go because plot, it's basically because of the MacGuffin. And in this episode, really what drives the team to go back in time, it's this egg. But in reality, it's Sarah trying to set Nate and Zari up on a date. It could have been a dragon egg. It could have been a teacup. It really didn't matter. Sarah just wanted to get Nate and Zari on some sort of mission so they could be alone and possibly hook up, which they basically do. You know, that's really what this title is about. And we just got some other great teaming things going on between Charlie and Mick. And then, of course, we have Ray and then eventually Constantine and Gary. In Gary's hole again. Lots of stuff to talk. I'm excited about this episode. Talk about this episode. Lots of stuff to talk about, including the Indiana Jones theme of the episode. I really enjoyed the moment where Nate and Zari were doing the thing that Indiana Jones and Marion were doing on the ship, where she was kissing him wherever it was hurting and stuff. I kind of wanted the elbow. I kind of wanted to start with the elbow, but they didn't go there. It was great. Everything from the time period to her dress to the Nazis them being tied back to back in the chairs that's happened before. It was just great. And I loved how Nate ended up doing the sexy move through the wire bit. Yes. <laughs> I was really hoping we got a spinning uh, chimney uh, trap door or secret door like we had in the third Indiana Jones movie when they were tied in the chairs. But alas, there was no secret door in the fireplace. No, but we got that same moment that we've seen in a lot of movies before with the lasers uh, going around. And I think the Thomas Crown Affair was like the, the first in modern age to do something like that. And then it, there's been a bunch of movies that have done it after that. But I could be wrong about the Thomas Crown Affair being the first one, but I seem to remember it in there. So there was also the Catherine Zeta-Jones and Sean Connery one that I cannot remember the name of the movie all of a sudden, but... Yeah, that's the, that's the take Nate's scene was coming from because there's that infamous shot of Catherine Zeta-Jones or her body double or whatever doing that deep, you know, basically to get the butt up sort of deal, which is kind of what we got with Nate. So that's why I, I liked it. Maybe that's what I was thinking of instead. It's another heist movie, so it's entirely possible. Yes, it was all a heist at that point. <laughs> They've done heists on this show before, haven't they? I mean, straight up heists? Yeah, I think so. I'm just waiting for the Ocean's Eleven riff one day. That'd be good. 
Oh, that would be great. Mick has to lead that one. Oh, that'd be fantastic. He's got to put together a team. <laughs> nice pull, Mick. And, and really, in this like main one, we find out that it's a dragon egg, and we get that whole sort of Vincent is the one who's like guilty. It's again, it's where my quote comes from. It's always the doormat because that leads into a couple of other things that happens in the episode. But we also got punch of Nazis and Chris. I mean, just how fun is it to see people punch Nazis? There's absolutely nothing wrong with punching Nazis. Punching Nazis is okay. I, I have a little issue with Ray punching Nate, but we'll get to that. It wasn't really Ray, though. Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. Speaking of love, since this first date has allowed Nate and Zari to confess that they have feelings for each other, we're going to go to a romance convention now. I like Comic Cons and going to Game Cons, and I loved how we got a convention for romance, and there were even people dressed up as characters from Mick's book. In SP, when Mick was doing laundry, did you expect all that fan mail to come spilling out? No, but I wasn't surprised. I did not know he was receiving fan mail, and I don't know if he's working with an agent or whatever. I don't know how he gets mail, so we'll just leave that all on the floor just like the letters were. But uh, he's so engaged with this. Now, remember, he's been alive for a long, long time, right? Because he was changed into something else, and then they were able to save him. So he is wise beyond his years for a reason, because he is he's the oldest guy on the ship he's the oldest guy on the show by far and he's funneled that into feelings and emotion and that's where his writing is coming out now the mick of it took centuries i think in order to get mick from where he was to where he is now but he is there now and he is just spouting some great wisdom i love what the writers have done with him i love how he eventually interacts with the crowd and i love how he's interacting with the fans I can see where he's coming from because he chose a non-diplume that was female and he's male. And to go to a romance convention, which was mostly women, I could see how he would think that having his real identity out there wasn't going to be a good thing. But if there's one thing that I've learned watching the Hallmark Channel all these years is that this is entirely possible. As a matter of fact, this convention would be entirely possible if it was a Hallmark Channel convention. I like how he has to like train Charlie. I've been to a lot of conventions where like the comic ones where they invite the guest and I'm not going to name names on the awful side of the spectrum where you know they're there just for the check. It, it's that typical, the way Charlie was acting at the beginning. Oh, I have a Q&A. Oh, dumb fans, whatever. Just give me the money. I'll do whatever blah, blah, blah. And as a fan, you not only do you pay for the ticket, you've got to pay for how to get there and there's hotel and there's just your time and you want to have a good time. And when you get that whole sort of thing, it's like, oh, they're just there for a rent and they don't, they don't even act like they're actors, like act like you want to be there at least for 10 minutes. I mean, come on, you know? But I've, I've been there where they just are like, I don't really want to answer any of your questions. I'm just doing 30 minutes, even though the panel's for 50. 
I'm here for my paycheck. Those are the worst ones. When it's like fans are really excited and it's someone that just, you can tell they don't give a damn other than the fact that they're getting paid. I interviewed an actor once on one of my TV shows, and it may or may not be this one, although we haven't really interviewed any actors on this show. So anyway, I interviewed an actor once that at the beginning, he laid down the the the, the law. It was, okay, we're, we're not going to talk about this. We're not going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about this, this, and this, which was good because those are the questions we were going to ask him. And so we were like, fine. We really enjoy, and we were trying to impart on him, we really enjoy that you're this character on screen. We think you played this character very well, and we just want to talk to you about the experience and, and what you put into the character and that sort of thing, which is what an actor does, right? So by the end of the interview, he, he was a little bit more vested in the interview, but it took a while to get there, and I could see, you know, they're private people too, but that's... Uh, <sighs> I'm struggling here to describe it, but it's a difficult road that they have to drive even between the public eye and then their private life. So I get that. But in this day and age, if you're an actor, you have to assume that you could explode into very public persona and you just have to be ready for that. And I don't think a lot of actors really are. It's really cool, though, when you run into one of those actors that gets the passionate fan base and is like super encouraged by it themselves and loves the project. So like 10 years ago, I went to Wizard World in Philadelphia, and it was before the Battlestar Galactica TV movie, The Plan, came out that Edward James almost directed and wrote part of, if I recall correctly. I know he directed it. I can't remember if he wrote, but he was on the panel there for Battlestar Galactica. It was like him, Michael Hogan, a few other folks. And the panel, they had to throw him out because he kept, he's like, I just want to keep talking about this project. I'm so excited about it. And the, he ran over by like 15 minutes, like the Buffy the Vampire Slayer panel starting up. We're, we're going to have to move on. And he goes, okay, he goes, well, I'm going to be signing. When he goes, when I go to my signing table, he goes, I want to talk more about this. So you guys, if you come and get autographs and stuff, I'll talk to you about it. And no joke, I paid the, I don't even remember what it was because it's a Wizard World convention. You pay for autographs. I went to go and get a signature on one of my Battlestar Galactica cast photos. And I said, hey, I really enjoyed your panel about the plan. I'm really looking forward to it. How different is it for you, like, being behind the lens now and not having to worry about being on set much to do anything acting-wise? And he talked to me for, like, 10 minutes. And he's like, just stand off to the side. I'm going to sign. And he's, because he wanted to keep talking. And had me stand off to the side of his table while he signed autographs and talked to fans. But also kept talking about how excited he was about this project. And I'm sitting here going, you're, like, one of my favorite characters on TV. You're a phenomenal actor. And you're willing just to engage with me, random fan, for like 10 minutes, like almost one-on-one at a convention. This is awesome. And it's things like that when people see actors doing that or when you have an experience like that and share it, we're like, this is the kind of thing you want. This is what we love about conventions is actors that embrace it. The same kind of things we've heard about like Stephen Amell and a lot of the other actors in the Arrowverse is that they're super engaged with all the fans. They want to talk. They want to talk about the projects they're passionate about and build these relationships up with the fan bases. I love it. And that's sort of what you saw reflected in Mick in this episode. He kind of realized, he goes, these are my fans. These are the people that love something that I've put myself into. He he wanted to treat them right from the beginning, but then he kind of realized that Charlie can't really convey the message of what I want Rebecca Silver's story to be. So it was, I'm going to reveal that me, Mick, I'm Rebecca Silver to everyone in the room. I thought it was pretty cool and it was pretty powerful and goes again, like I said, to that aspect of actors connecting with fans. I thought it was a great moment. 
And I understand like when you're going to reveal something big that that moment, it's like, are you, is it going to go awful or is it not? And I think part of him actually having some sort of comfort is that Mona was there and that's someone that he knew. And I think that allowed him a little level of comfort and Mona going, you are Rebecca Silver. I would recognize that wisdom anywhere. It was a wonderful moment. It was wonderful, but it also enlightens me to how that could be faked out in public, right? So just hire an actor to do exactly what Mona did, and then boom, you've, you've got your moment. But it was really cool. I really enjoyed it. And you're right. Mick had established a relationship with Mona as a fan without her knowing it. So it meant a lot to him that she was so vested and she saw that uh, it was a fraud basically in front of her and she was calling it out and he wanted to set the record straight. It, it was a powerful moment in, in uh, just general fandom, I guess, but it goes beyond that. It goes to actual creators as well. Uh, you think of the, the, the hard arts. This could happen easily there as well. And we learned earlier that there was book club. It's supposed to be book club today. And Mona got that little, you know, blip on social media. And she's like, okay, I got to drop out of book club because I'm going to go to this convention. And I think part of it was this like, she saw people she knew. And not only is it like one of her favorite authors, but it's her friends pretending to be her. It's like a double hurt for her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I could see that. Yeah, she knew them and was like, oh, you're making fun of this just to get the, well, she didn't know about the 20,000, but she could probably infer why they were doing it. I thought it was really cute. This whole Sarah trying to find time to read the book for book club and eventually getting the audio version and listening to it at double speed. Well, we heard it up to double speed up to the point where it said the killer. And then I think at that point in time, it drew her in. And she, I think she might have slowed it down at that point. Yeah. So, Chris, SP, have you ever like done something? Because Sarah wants to do this because she thinks Ava is really into book club. And she's like, I want to do something that you like. Have you ever done? It's why I play Pokemon Go. Charmed. Yeah, fair. There's things in my DVR for that same reason that I'll never admit to on live uh, podcasting for that same reason. <laughs> I thought it was adorable when Ava had to confess that she didn't read the book, that she goes there just to drink wine and listen to Mona. But she's like, hey, I could sit here and drink wine and listen to you. And that's where Sarah gets the idea about it's the doormat, how it's always the doormat, someone who feels used and neglected made fun of and that comes into big play when it comes to gary because he comes on board because he th he wants to help out ray and chris what's going on with ray ray's just a little possessed we were it was hinted at the last episode that neuron had found a new unwilling host in ray and uh yeah it's totally going on and it's totally fun to watch brandon ralph play it off brandon ralph's probably your mvp this episode because Brandon Routh is playing himself and possessed himself and fighting with himself, trying to stab his buddies and things like that. SP, what did you think of him trying to science his way out of possession? 
It was it was precious. Uh, it's just Ray, and he's just doing the only thing he knows how to do, and he's trying to not hurt anybody. And ultimately, he capitulates, which ah, I just I hated that because you knew that Constantine was coming, and yet he decides to do it. And uh, I could understand why he was he was trying to save his bro. And again, I t- I talked about this at the beginning of the show, in that I don't understand even if it's a possessed ray i have an issue with nate getting pummeled as he's steeled up like no you're punching steel it's not going to affect him the question is and it depends on what lore of demonic possession you agree with watching a variety of things be it supernatural or buffy or things like that does neuron enhance ray's strength in any way shape or form does he enhance the host body while he's there. One could argue potentially a demonic possession leads to super strength. We've seen it at least in other science fiction and fantasy based products. So that's the way I could potentially spin it to say that's why stealing up was ineffective or minimally effective. I would think that there would have been some denting going on or something like that of the steel, but that costs too much money. That's right. I mean, at some point, you have a cut line. This is a show on CW. It's not an HBO Game of Thrones sort of CGI budget here. That's why Nate only steals up for like 10 second blocks at a time anymore. I was shocked to see him steal up in this episode twice. Yeah. But total time is maybe, what, 15 seconds of stealed up on screen? It wasn't long. It's still time that they have to take into the CGI bin. And I don't know uh, how long that takes them or how much money or anything like that. Because ultimately, seconds equal dollars in the computer generation. Right. But like we said, we have no idea what the costs are, things like that. If you're someone who works in the CGI, CG world, and you might have an idea, send us tweets, send us a message, give us an idea so that we can tell whether we're completely off base and we like, they keep them stealing up less because it costs too much. I think that's underlying. You know, when Arrow first came out, they were trying to stick to $2 million per episode. And other than the Arrows, when they first came out, there were just a lot of actual effects. There were very little CGI effects. I don't know what their budgets are anymore. It could be $4 million, It could be $1 million, I don't know. I did interview somebody on Voices of Defiance that worked in the CGI department for Defiance. And it's basically a whole company that's dedicated to the CGI for a show. There's a lot of overhead that goes with that. Because Gary actually is like, I've been interning with Constantine and actually have learned some things that he's trying to help Ray get Neron out. And he actually like puts himself in like the containment field because Gary knows it's like if you murder someone that you love, then you'll get possessed, you'll lose. And that moment where Ray has to be like, well, you know, and Gary just sort of realizes, oh, you don't love me, okay? You don't like me? And it just starts to start to hit because I've actually been that person where it's like, oh, the people around me really don't like me. Oh, that hurts. I felt for Gary so much. Yeah, I did too. I did too. And yeah, he's treated like that, but he's really liked when it comes down to everything. And and people do like him and want him around. 
Constantine was a bit rough with him at the end, and I think they had to do that from a writing perspective. By the way, we've mentioned the writers a couple of times. I just want to call them out again. James Egan and Tyron B. Carter. Very well done this episode. Congrats, guys. This was a really good episode that you guys put together. To get back to Gary, he was the sacrificial lamb at the start of the magical season. He did lose his nipple, and nobody really seemed to care about that. And I mean, he knew what he was doing was wrong, but it was so powerful for him to be whole again that he just took the chance, even though he knew because Constantine was telling him that the nipple was possessed. I would hate to have a possessed nipple. That would suck. But Gary just wanted to be whole. Yeah, it sounds awkward. But at the same time, I don't think Constantine was I don't know if he was overly harsh at the end. You got to remember, he's in an incredible amount of magical strain, concentration power-wise, to try and hold a demon at bay. A demon that's been ruining his life, possessed a man that John Constantine loved as well, and is already, let's face it, in John's head to some extent. He knows the right buttons to push, so he's pushing John's buttons, also kind of manipulating Gary into position, and if you're John Constantine and you're strained magically, this guy's been messing with your head forever, you're probably not going to be too kind when you're like, we need to stop this, do this. If you do that, you're an idiot. So I kind of see where Constantine's coming from. And he's always been a little rough around the edges too, let's be honest. And he did just come back from a very lengthy journey to find a phoenix feather and kill Nora. And so yeah, he was tired. And he also kind of thought they had dealt with Neuron. And mm-hmm. to find out he's still there and he's in ray you know boy scout and of course i understand why ray did it i mean ray and nate have one of the healthiest male friendships i have seen on television or in any sort of medium in a very long time and i think it's wonderful and people are like gosh how how should guys be it's like look ray nate they admit how they feel about each other. You're my bro. I love you, man. You know, bring it in for that hug. It's wonderful. And of course, Ray is really afraid. Like he doesn't know when Constantine's going to be there. Neron shut down Gideon. So he really doesn't know when anyone's going to show up. And he's about to kill his best friend, his brother. Of course, he's going to give up his life because he says don't hurt nate like that's the thing you know don't hurt him it's in a a passionate moment but you know what i was thinking of when i saw this and again i'm not there so i'm out and i'm viewing it from a place where we see everything going on in the show but i was thinking okay so you have this deal not to hurt nate what about everybody else because as soon as he becomes neuron he's going to try to hurt everybody else and I don't think Ray is really okay with that. I don't know if it's a matter of being okay with it, but knowing that he was losing, whether he wants to admit it or not, Neron was beating. He was getting progressively worse. He was starting to hurt people. And I don't know that Ray could handle watching himself kill his best friend and still being sort of in the driver's seat trying to fight it. So I think he took the best chance he could to try and save people to potentially later come and save him. I don't know that it was fully, I don't want to see my friend die, but if it's more of if I give in to this, there's at least a chance they can rally 
to try and do something to stop my body under the control of a demon from doing something worse. Ray's a smart guy. He's a pretty logical guy. And he's in touch with his feelings, it's true, but I, I think there might be a plan sort of brewing in the back of his head. Okay, I think this is also an acceptable moment that you can live to fight another day sort of thing. So, I could see that. Fair. Sometimes you need to do a retreat. This is more like a surrender, but yeah, okay. Sometimes you gotta lose a battle to win the war. Yep. Chris, is there anything else about the episode you want to talk about? I hope we get more Mick at conventions in the future because it was delightful and fun and it was the lighthearted piece of this episode that took away from the Holy crap, that's demon possessing Ray. Holy crap, that's a demon making him trying to kill people. Oh no, these people's feelings are hurt. Where's the lighthearted stuff to make me feel better? And we cut to Mick at a, at a romance convention or to Sarah and Eve and Ava kind of further solidifying their relationship and having happy moments. So I think they did a good job of mixing these heavy elements where you're like, oh, holy crap, with lighthearted moments like, ah, oh, this makes me feel a bit better. SP? I really enjoyed this episode. I was just trying to think of the rest of the season if there was an episode that I liked better than this. And it's definitely one of the top ones. And I will say that I think the show has really gotten a hold of itself to the point where the good episodes now in season four are some of the best of the entire series. So it might not be the best episode of the entire series, but it was a really good episode. And I really enjoyed watching it. Really enjoyed all of the story... It wasn't like there was an A storyline and a B storyline. There was a lot of A storylines, and they all intersected very well. And they all took elements of long-running plots. It was really cool. The one thing that I noticed at the end was Nora becomes part of the Time Bureau. And she's all in and helping somebody. You know what's going to happen. She's not going to be able to take care of Neuron because it's Ray, And... She's not going to be able to go forward with it. She's not Constantine. She's not going to be able to send Ray to hell. And you just know that that moment's coming. This is true. Well, I know what happened, so I'm not going to say anything. This is one of my favorite episodes because of all just the references to Indiana Jones. And then we find out it is indeed a dragon egg. And we get a new Gary. And we learn more about New Gary in the next episode called Nip Stuck. It's season four, episode 14. It aired Monday, May 6, 2019. When Sarah hesitates to make a tough call, Rory steps up, creating a wedge in the team. Meanwhile, Ava gives Gary the responsibility of handling the Bureau performance reviews for all of the agents. Directed by David Geddes, written by Ray Utarnichit and Matthew Mala. Live from the Starling Tribune main news desk on floor 52 of the Starling Tribune Tower, it's the weekly news roundup with award-winning chief news anchor, Michelle Ely. And now, Michelle Ely. Thank you, SP. Not a lot of news this time, but to me, it's sad news. Brandon Routh and Courtney Ford are going to leave as series regulars in season five. So Brandon Routh, who plays Ray Palmer, and Adam and Courtney Ford, who portrays Nora Dark, their exit stems from a creative decision to wrap up their storyline. Because of the nature of the time-traveling Legends of Tomorrow, there has been a natural character turnover with series regulars leaving as their stories come to an end and new ones coming on board. Of the large regular ensemble cast that started in Season 1, only a couple will still be on the show by the end of this coming season. 
I know they are on a few episodes in season five. I think they've already have filmed their last episode. And I know Brandon has some stuff to do with the crossover, but this makes me sad. We're losing haircut. Yeah, I'm bummed. I'm bummed too, but at the same time, I mean, this was, he played Superman at one point in time, and we know he's going to be playing Superman again in, in the Crisis crossover. I think he's destined for other things. I mean, I've seen him in Hallmark Channel movies. I know he's doing other things as they come up. I know he and his wife have a lot of possibilities in front of them, and he's been with the franchise now for a long time. I'm not mad that he's leaving. Uh, I'm not sad that he's leaving. I would like to have him around, but at the same time, I'm okay with him leaving, and I look forward to what they try to replace him with, because whoever comes in to replace those roles has big shoes to fill. It's true. Now, Brandon Ralph, he's done a lot of stuff before. Like SP had mentioned, he's been Superman. He's been in other television movies, things like that. He was Agent Daniel Shaw and Chuck in a whole season then recurring in multiple times where he got to play the bad guy and was delightful at it. I would love to see Brandon Routh play the bad guy in something else. So there's other opportunities and there's probably also the fact of his life's probably not in Vancouver. He's been spending a lot of time in Vancouver. Same thing we'd seen Stephen Amell talk about that he's in Vancouver a lot, but in his case, his home is Los Angeles. So maybe part of it is the opportunity was there for them to kind of just go home. He and his wife got to work together for a little bit, which was probably great. And maybe they went, hey, time for us to go take a break, figure out what the next step is. And let's be honest, the way this show works, it's not exactly hard to bring them back from time to time if they wanted to, or to find some way to bring them back on a permanent basis next season or the season after next or something like that if they needed to. It's just really weird now. If you think about the original Legends of Tomorrow crew, all we got left is Sarah and Mick. That's it. And we don't have the barista. You know, she used to be a barista, right? I forgot. Yeah. Is there a deal breaker for either of you when it comes to this show? If someone leaves, that's it? That's the thing. The way that they've run the show, I mean, if they didn't get rid of the Hawk people, I would have probably left the show. But uh, if they have continually reloaded the show... I mean, think about it charlie you care about charlie you care about zari you care about gary you care about ava everybody that they brought on the show you care about and is a great character they have a a, a great ability to bring somebody on now if sarah leaves which i don't think she will but if sarah leaves you're gonna have to replace that leadership role somehow could it be zari sure could it be, could it be mick sure but you'd have to have them have a arc where they become the lead, just like Sarah had an arc where she became captain. You have to have an arc for that. And I think they could write just about any character into that arc of being captain again. But it would suck not having Sarah. She's, it's like she was made for the role. I think it'd be tough to get rid of her, but it, the way this show works is they find ways of bringing new people in, making you care about them. And I mean, think of any other show out there. How many other shows have survived a turnover where they have two of their original cast left? Smallville sort of did it. There were only two actors on that that were there for the entire run, and it lasted 10 seasons, but it's, it's not very often heard of that you can do this turnover, and they've done a pretty good job of it. Yeah, that's true. There are examples out there like um, Law & Order. Right. 
shows that are formulatic, but very few in sci-fi. I was just trying to think, like Stargate Atlantis. There was turnover, but not that much. Any of the Star Trek series, eh, there, there wasn't that much turnover. Yes, there was turnover of a couple characters, but by the time you got to the end, you still had that core of characters that were there. So you really don't see that much in sci-fi. They did a good job with the show of making it so that you can add people and subtract people and also change the theme of the show, but it all still sort of works because what we see now with Legends of Tomorrow is not at all like what we had in season one of Legends of Tomorrow. It's not the same show. It's evolved and it's changed into a quirkier thing and they're just equipped to be able to change it as they need to. So arguably you could say they could probably survive if none of the original cast was left. It's just a matter of making people care about the characters that have come in so that that overshadows the fact that, oh man, I really like Sarah, for instance. She's been there since day one and she's gone now. I was just trying to compare it in my head to Arrow and the cast from season one and season two compared to the cast from season six and seven. And since we watch the show every week, we follow the characters' progressions and, and we get a little bit more invested in it. But I don't know if the general public is as invested in Arrow cast from season seven as they were from season two. Well, I mean, the thing with Arrow, though, is it's a show that's built around Oliver Queen. Oliver Queen is the central point of the show. That's why I think it would be very hard to do it without him. That's why I'm skeptical of the rumored spinoff they want to do of Star City 2049. With an ensemble show like Legends, you can get away with, there's no title character to lose. You can't lose Barry in The Flash. You can't lose Black Lightning in Black Lightning. You can't lose Batwoman in The Batwoman Show because they're the character everything's built around. You can lose Barry in The Flash. And the reason why it's called The Flash, and there, we know that there are multiple Flash characters. Okay, fair. You could arguably say the same thing about Oliver Queen because there's been multiple Green Arrows as well. But the way these shows are built in their current state, now granted I'm two seasons behind on Flash, they're fundamentally built around that central point of that character that you relate to. Whereas Legends kind of started, you sort of, they wanted you to like Captain Rip Hunter, but then it became, oh, we've got this ensemble, so we're going to kind of shift between episodes and make a different person be the focus so they've kind of built up a bunch of characters of equal attachment to fans for lack of a better term because they've given them all their chance to shine and they constantly shift between them whereas i think with the oliver queen kind of character oliver is almost always the focus when they give the focus to someone else it comes back either at the end of the episode or the next episode and oliver's the central point again so it's slightly different in that regard. I'm not sure if I'm making sense there or just blathering like a moron, I'll be honest. You're making sense, and I was thinking of The Flash specifically, and, and you were saying that Oliver Queen is the central character on Arrow, yeah. So without Barry Allen being The Flash, then you'd have nobody to blame when things go wrong. So Barry is essential. What was I thinking? That we are all The Flash. I forgot that lesson that really annoyed me in season, what, three or four of The Flash. We are The Flash. Yeah, they haven't built Wally up enough to make him make that transition possible. I was just curious about what you guys thought. And that's all I have for the news this week. Well, guys, on that note, it is about time for us to start wrapping things up and shutting down this stream. So a big thank you to all of our live listeners that watch the show over at Geeks.Live, the official streaming home of the Gunna Geek Network. But also a big thank you to everyone who downloads the episode, the audio version, over at StarlingTribune.com or catches the replay over at youtube.com slash gonna geek. 
And also we have an Amazon skill. So if you have an Amazon device, go ahead and enable the skill. You have full player control for the Starlink Tribune podcast. And also we have a lot of great discussions over on our Discord server, which you can find at guineageek.com slash Discord. And you can join us live as American Liberty did tonight in our chat room by going to geeks.live at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific on most Thursdays. We would love to hear from you. We're the Starry Tribune on Facebook and Instagram, at Starry Tribune on Twitter, and you can call us at 612-888-CAVE. That's 612-888-2283. Well, this brings us to the end of another great episode. Any last words before we sign off? At Stargate Pioneer. Hashtag demonized nipple. At the Chris Farrell. Hmm. Hashtag, I had to write down my note here, going to Romanticon, Hoss. And I am at Michelle Ely signing off with hashtag sexy Nate through the wires. Oracle, I think we're done here. This was the Starling Tribune. You can leave us feedback at gunnageek.com or check out our archive at starlingtribune.com. Visit gunnageek.com for more podcasts. Music by Kevin McLeod can be found at incompetech.com. This podcast is not produced or maintained by the CW, Warner Brothers Television, CTV, or DC Comics. All characters, stories, and situations are the property of Time Warner. No infringement is intended. We will see you for the next episode of CW's Arrow.